0: Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want what fuels you to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories of years and successes, who influenced those decisions, and what lessons were learned along the way. I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Kristen Bauer. Kristen is the CEO of Laird Norton Wealth Management, LNWM, and has more than two decades of experience in private wealth management, financial services, and business management. Before joining NLWM, Kristen was a senior leader at Tiedemann Advisors, serving as managing director for the Pacific Northwest. She also served as CFO, Chief Business Development Officer, Chief Client Service Officer, and then President of Threshold Group. Kristen graduated from the University of Washington Foster School of Business with a Bachelor of Arts with an emphasis in business and accounting. She is a Certified Public Accountant, CPA, and a Personal Financial Specialist, PFS, Kristen grew up in Bend, Oregon, which inspired her love of the outdoors and her ongoing involvement with environmental causes. She currently serves as board chair of the Nature Conservancy, Washington chapter, and is board president of the Wilderness Awareness School. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Shauna. Happy to be here. So good to see you. Okay, I'm hitting you with some rapid fire. Boom, boom. Okay, Favorite favorite place to hike?
1: Ooh, Snow Lake's my favorite hike here in Washington. If you haven't been, you got to go. It's just a beautiful lake.
0: Tell me uh, something that you're maybe reading or listening to or watching that you'd Mm -hmm. recommend.
1: Yeah, there's that, but I'm reading a book called Think Again, which is really interesting about how you challenge your mindset. So, um, but I can only take it in like bite-sized pieces because I'm not really a big fan of
0: nonfiction books. Is that Adam Grant? Grant? it's adam grant yeah yeah i yeah? read that book yeah that was good yeah it's That's, good that was great yeah okay what is on like repeat or i guess if you looked in your spotify what would be the most uh frequently downloaded artist uh ryan bingham okay i'm a country western oh don't tell oh, me what? <laughs> don't. watch
1: Yellowstone? studies I'm, oh, no. I'm a total yeah okay Uh, so he is in Yellowstone he's Walker the guitar player and uh, I took my youngest daughter to Austin over Labor Day and we saw two shows of his so
0: okay I will download it just for you I'm not into country but I will do that Um, okay tell me some nicknames oh well um, you know one very well most people call me by Jabs
1: J-A-B-S which was my maiden name um, matter of fact, in college, nobody actually really knew my first name. I don't think I'm, I'm I, if you're at a challenge, the people that I went to college with, maybe I think you probably learned my first name way after you went like, Yeah, it's like, I, I don't to think I can together. even
0: call you, Kristen. Yeah. <laughs> so but just- my brother
1: called me, my brother called me Kiki when I was growing up, which I hated because it was the, the next door neighbor's little girl, how she called garbage. But I actually think if I become a grandma, I'm gonna like reclaim that
0: name. name That's so funny that you say Kiki, the grandma name, because I literally still practice and I'll throw names out to my kids of like what I want my grandma to be. <laughs> They're like, why are you doing this already? And I'm like, so excited to be a grandma for some reason. I'm like, slow your roll. Um, okay, tell me three words that others use to describe you as a leader, hopefully they're aspirationally what also you would use to describe yourself.
1: Um, I think that they would say I'm an empath that uh, even though I work in the financial services industry, which is usually kind of a dog-eat-dog world that I have been able to find empathy um, for families, families of wealth, for employees, I would say they say that. Um, they would say that I'm a connector. I like to connect people together. Um, I I really find a lot of value in that. And um, I think they would say that I'm personable. Like I really, I, you know, for love of people, I love people. And I really like to understand the what drives people, the more nuanced things, Um, you know, what gets them excited? How can I help them along in their journey? Yeah. what fuels them, right? (laughs) Yeah. I've been asking, I was thinking about your podcast and the name and it's such an interesting name for that. Like what does fuel you? Like what is, what is underneath it all? Right. Yeah.
0: That's the whole point of it. And it's like, so linked to what I do for a living, like really accessing that, especially when you're thinking about placing people into jobs or finding talent for people it's like what is getting them out of bed it's more than just you have this skill they have this need it's like what what, how does that fit into their well-being and their overall kind of goals personally and professionally um I love it okay tell me something that you haven't done yet in your life that you have on your list like that I just want to do this
1: yeah, I have I have actually um, three things on my bucket list. One of them is to do the Annapurna Circuit in Nepal. It's like a three or four week circular hike. It's just, it's been on my bucket list for a very long time. And I just haven't been able to find the time to do that. The other one is to live in New York for a season, you know, like the fall to go there for four months and live. And again, that one hasn't, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Although we now have a New York office. So maybe there's an opportunity to, to actually pull that off. And my girls are in school. And then, um, the last one is to do, take a road trip down the Baja peninsula and kind of camp along the way in in Mexico. I I have a fascination with Mexico.
0: Tell me about this hike. How, how long is it? Like, what kind of hike are we talking?
1: Yeah, you go around the Himalayas, um, and they have little huts along the way that you stay in and you can hire somebody to kind of carry your bags and you actually don't even need to bring much because they have like little, you just sit and have, I think like a hot soup with a a family or in a little hut and stay the night and you just keep going like you can take like a relatively light backpack people say it's just like a a game changer for you and just your kind of mental as you're hiking around the Himalayas. so beautiful but also just how the police and the other countries live
0: you know so how many miles are you hiking like a day ish
1: I think you can go at your own pace, but you kind of have to make
0: it to that next hut, so. <laughs> yeah. I'm into it, I'm into it. I don't know if you're trying to do this alone, but I like- you know, I don't wanna do it alone, so if you wanna go, let's, I let's could go. do two out of three of those. I've lived in New York for 13 years, so I've done the New York mm-hmm. thing, but I um, mm-hmm. I like those other two, those are cool. Yeah. And I love yeah, that I you knew them, because obviously I didn't prep you with these questions and that you're just like, boom. Clearly you're living with intention. <laughs> Some people would just be like, I don't know, Shawna, you caught me off guard. You're like, here's my three. <laughs> That doesn't surprise me at all. Okay. Well, cause um, I haven't
1: accomplished them either, but they've been on my list for a very Yeah, but at long least time. you know
0: what they are. I mean, I don't know how I would answer that. I'm asking you and I, I, mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll just cut paste what Jabs is saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Introvert or extrovert? Uh,
1: I'm an introvert that can pretend to be an extrovert. I've
0: gotten really good at being an extrovert. Yeah, I actually was gonna um, call that one. I was like, that's gonna be mm-hmm. her answer. Um, okay. So Bend, Oregon also, like for me, that's, it's not necessarily on my bucket list, but it's this Mm -hmm. area that I want to spend time in. Tell me about your childhood in Bend, Oregon. Yeah.
1: So actually the, the real story is I was born in Everett, Washington, while my dad was on temporary assignment for a construction company. So I wasn't supposed to be born there, but, um, but basically grew up in Bend, Oregon. Um, my parents had both my brother and I, Kind of in college, they um it was kind of the whoopsie thing, and uh, obviously, they didn't figure it out after my brother, they had a whoopsie again, and so they had two young kids at a very young age. And um, so I grew up kind of out in the woods in Bend, Oregon, and um, with really young parents that hadn't quite figured things out just yet. And uh, we spent a lot of time outdoors, we didn't have a lot of money, we did a lot of you know, kind of camping and hiking. My dad was on ski patrol. So we went up to the mountain every weekend and, um, skied and, you know, it was a really, it was really about being outdoors and outside. And I, I, yeah. It, it sounds
0: pretty idyllic, even though there wasn't money and it's probably like you didn't even know that you didn't have money.
1: No, I actually, you know, other than the fact that it was, uh, you know, my parents were so young, I, you know, I, uh, I think it's, we try to recreate that now that, Upbringing for children, where you had to kind of fend for yourself. I was kind of a scrappy kid that spent a lot of my time outdoors. And both my parents worked, so my brother and I had to figure it out at home. We were latchkey kids that walked home from school every day. And,
0: um, yeah. Were you into school? Were you a good student? I I was, I was. But you weren't a nerd. You weren't a nerd. What were you doing outside of being a good student?
1: So my mom um, started a gymnastics academy in our backyard, and that's where I met my dearest friend. She was my mom's first student, and her parents traded like bales of hay for gymnastics lessons, and so I spent a lot of my time growing up doing gymnastics, and um, that went all the way through through actually my my freshman year in college. Um, You weren't weren't at school yet, but I did do gymnastics my freshman year in college, and that was kind of how, you know, if I wasn't uh, skiing or, you know, being with
0: friends. I was, I was at the gym. And what was your special thing in gymnastics? Was it the beam, the bar? What was your...
1: say the bar in the vault. I'm actually not very flexible, which makes the beam and the, the, uh, uh, floor tough. So the vault is like run fast, hit it hard, go in the, in yeah. the bars. Yeah. So I was what's, not very good. What's actually, crazy about Frank? To be honest with you.
0: <laughs> well, to be able to do it in college is no joke. Um, yeah. And so, were you, who was driving you to be kind of, I guess, driven? Like, was there was there a um, a value around success?
1: Yeah, my brother was a pretty intense athlete. He was a runner and a cross country skier, and so I think it was just part of our family upbringing there wasn't really a lot of pressure from my parents I don't know maybe it was more internal driven but he was older than me by 15 months so um I I do have a little bit of a competitive nature in me and maybe fueled by my I don't think I
0: knew that I've got the 16 month older brother too Scott's Ah. 16 months older than me really it's it's, Yeah. yeah 15 months 16 months yeah and so um did you have teachers that kind of exposed you to the idea of business. Cause I know that you studied, um, at the foster school of business, which today, like nobody can get in.
1: Right. Um, right,
0: And it's an incredible school. But, um, back then I feel like, um, how did you even know that you wanted to study business?
1: Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I, I think the people that had the most impact in my life was my third grade and fourth, fourth grade teacher. My third grade teacher was Mrs. Brannon. She was so smart and wise and actually empowered me to like think that I could actually be smart myself. And I think she instilled this, her love of numbers. I really, really like numbers. If you look at my SAT scores, I got like 750 on math and like 400 on English. So I'm a terrible English major, but really math. But my fourth grade teacher was Mr. Ingram and he could care less about academics. He was about love, which is so interesting. And I remember my first day in fourth grade, he shared this story about two orphaned kids, um, babies just born, and one nurse would like love on one and not on the other. And just that that connection to human beings and love and how that actually fulfills success in, um, in your life is just having love. Uh, um, he was a fascinating teacher. And the kid the class was unruly like kids were just you know all over the place but because all he would talk about was just like love and purpose and connection and so um are you still in touch with those teachers um i was in with mr ingram passed away gosh probably 15 years ago but i was with mrs Brannon. yeah they're both they were both in bend and my mom was a teacher too so um I don't know. From there, I kind of, he instilled a little bit of confidence in me, I guess I would say. Yeah. They both did.
0: Um, Isn't that amazing? Like teachers just need to know these stories, um, the impact, whether it's doubt. I had dinner um, months and months ago where we had kind of a, a table topic at a dinner party at my house. And we were talking about teachers and the inspiration or lack thereof. And one guy who's massively successful was saying that a teacher basically brought mm-hmm. him into parent teacher conference and and told his parents in front of him that he wasn't going to basically amount to anything, that they should start looking at like vocational schools um, for him, like in front of him. Yeah. Learning disability, which today people know a little bit more about, but back then they didn't. Right. And he said that like every little bit of success, he like sends that teacher a letter, like he had a little bit of that, like, um carrot stick like um, fueled by doubt like fueled by like proving someone wrong versus like I was always supposed to be successful so of course I'm holding myself to that standard it's just fascinating what kind of gets people to push themselves to that next level it it sometimes is doubt Um, so it's fascinating so how did you choose UW of all the schools is it because it could have been U of O a lot of Oregon people go there
1: Because I wanted to do something different uh, because all my friends were going to Oregon and Oregon State and UW seemed so far away, which is amazing. The big city. (laughs) city. (laughs) So I drove up there and was like, this is where I want to go. It's the only school I applied to. Um, So I, yeah, it was never had, never had been to Seattle. I don't wow. know if you, you, when you drive on I-5 and you kind of come around that corner and you see the city, you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah, of
0: course. Yeah. Was that so, the right choice for you, Deb?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a, such a great experience. I mean, it opened my eyes to so many new things. Um, business-wise, city, you know, Bend was tiny. You know, I ended up graduating from a high school, from a school in Portland, actually, like Oswego, which is kind of small and very nuanced in itself and so just being exposed to something different than Oregon was really eye-opening
0: yeah and you went right into consulting was that something where they kind of came on campus and did I know that um consulting and finance and investment banking and those types of industries often do on-campus recruiting is that how you ended up at Arthur Anderson
1: yeah so I'm a CPA um, I actually went into the auditing side of Arthur Anderson they came on campus when I was a junior they offered me a job at the end of my junior year which was really kind of cool so my whole senior year was was just about um, graduating and party in the front Arthur Anderson in the back I had a job I wasn't doing gymnastics anymore I didn't have to stay in shape so yes uh, it was uh, but you and I were in a sorority and I lived in the sorority all four years and it was about it we had a great time we Things did have, have a fun. good time. What
0: did you learn yes. at Arthur Anderson? And did you ever consider that as your long-term career?
1: Um, I didn't. And mostly because, um, you know, not to go on the, the female thing, but it was really hard to be a female in uh, big, it was the big eight back then accounting firm. Um, because if you wanted to have kids, I mean, what I learned was how to work hard. Um, I I had never worked so hard in my life. I mean, it was not unusual to be working 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. And I mean, seven days a week you were, you were working and being really like, um, technical about all the things that you had to do and managing all the different moving pieces of an audit. I mean, Mm -hmm. they really had a great training program that set your mind up for like how to be successful and manage projects and keep all the different balls in the air at one time what, what sacrifice was your life. And I saw, um, there was no female partners in the Seattle office and women that I really respected who had kids. I mean, they just really struggled. They, they didn't get promoted, um, because they had to leave at five or six o'clock to go pick up their child. And then and I find it just,
0: just horrendous. It was terrible. It's yeah. terrible. And it's such it a bullshit. Terrible. I mean, I hear that and it's, I mean, we've made some progress, but, um, I'm reading a book, actually a friend of mine just wrote, it just came out yesterday. I'm going to send it to you. It's called Women Who Lead and mm. I'm, in, I'm in it and it's, um, the statistics are just crazy. We haven't made enough progress and we could have a whole podcast dedicated to the subject, um, but I want to dig into you. So we're not going to go there too yeah. on that, but uh, yeah, I can understand that. Um, certain and industries. I don't know
1: that it was necessarily a conscious thought, but it was just maybe subconscious like, wow, yeah. this is not a place I want to be for the long haul. And then true story we were not allowed to wear pantsuits. We had to wear skirts, which yeah. I remember in my tenure there, was like babe, this big announcement, oh, women can wear pantsuits. Like, oh
0: my it's God. It's so funny because I, I literally have one of my questions because I worked in New York for years uh, and San Francisco, kind of in that, like in those industries, placing people and recruiting into consulting and finance. And there were the industries where, I mean, I had to tell people what to wear on in the interview, and it had to be the pantsuit, the skirt suit, specifically for women, the skirt suit, a certain length. I mean, it's length. so old school. Um, it just can't, it's just—it's actually like awkward to even talk about, but it's—it's it's real. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like real. the people that are listening today that are like twenty-two are like, "Wait, what?" But it's real. <laughs> um, what were you what, excited you to about to the office? Make, office were you so we what? <laughs> you had to be accountable. Wait, eighty hours a week. What? Um, what kind of projects were you working on? And I guess when I hear the word audit, think of that as like, wah, wah, like I don't want to be audited. Did you feel like also like that's not the inspiring person? It's a little bit of the like, called to the principal's office.
1: Yeah. And you bring up a really great point because again, these things, I mean, somewhat of a slow learner, but I started to realize that um, we were looking historically at numbers and auditing, Things that happened in the past. This was nothing that had to do like making a positive impact for the future. It was all about, like you said, auditing the past. And um, so it just, you know, like I said, I learned a lot of great things. I, yeah. I couldn't be more thankful for my for my uh um like the foundation there. Yeah. It, it, total foundation. And and honestly, it is what brought me to where I am today. So I'm I'm incredibly thankful about how that launched me into. Mm-hmm. Where, where I am today. Yeah.
0: And also, I mean, just from, from a recruiter's seat, um, gosh, what a resume, right? Five years in to your career, you've got yeah. UW Foster. You've got Arthur Anderson on your resume. Yeah. You can kind of not necessarily write your own ticket. But really, at that point, you could have easily gone and gotten an MBA pretty much anywhere, or gone and pursued whatever it is. And you went to Medallia Healthcare, which I looked up. I had not heard of that company. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it was a little bit of like a healthcare platform. Yeah, it was actually
1: a client right? of mine. Um, it was a, they were taking on managed care uh, really aggressively. It was a culmination of the Franciscans, Providence Healthcare, and um, Children's Hospital, and it was really this great concept, uh, uh, but did not really succeed in this concept of taking on what was called managed care. Um, but what, what the outcome of that was that the person who was running the Providence health plan was a gentleman by the name of Tim Cavanaugh, who was George Russell's son-in-law. And, um, you know, I was only at Medallia for a year. It was like, like this thing. And I got a call from Tim Cavanaugh and he said, you actually don't know who I am. He and I formed this really great relationship, but like our companies were struggling. We were trying to figure out this managed care. We were both of them, honestly, were, uh, going bankrupt and they ended up going, some in some sense but he called me and he said you know i have this other life um i'm actually george russell's son-in-law and uh what would you think about joining me on this side of the table i'd like to introduce you to my to my father-in-law we're about to sell the family business and i'd love for you to join me and start our family office
0: so how big was the family office at the time no nobody it was me. Oh, it was, it was, was yeah. No, I mean yeah, like was... asset, I mean, asset wise, like what are we talking? Cause now you're in the like multiple billions, like the, the, the magnitude of your role now is so beyond comprehension that I'm curious if there was like a building blocks or if it was like, you just got thrown into the crazy. Well,
1: it was 28 and I got thrown into the crazy. So the, the, um, the public numbers are that it sold for more than a billion dollars. And so this was all, you know, completely new to the Russell family. Um, George Russell, obviously, is one of the most brilliant investment minds in the world, was, has been touted that. So we knew a lot about investments, but wealth is a very personal journey. And so um, I think the family was really wise and saying, gosh, we know a lot about investments, but we don't even know about, you know, we, we've been basically investing in this business with not a lot of cash flow. Now this is a whole new regime of like liquid wealth for us, where, um, how, how do we even think about this journey and what we can use this wealth for? And that's when they, they hired me to basically help them start this family office that was originally focused just on that family and setting up a structure and thinking about the foundation and raising their kids. And, you know, what do they want to do with this new wealth that they didn't have?
0: And so when you say setting it up from an operational standpoint or from an investment strategy standpoint, or all of the above. All the above. So that's incredible.
1: And so they just
0: trusted you because obviously at that level, oftentimes it is more than anything about trust.
1: That's 100% what it was about. Tim and I had a really trusting relationship. We had formed a friendship and, um, and through very difficult times. It wasn't all, it wasn't great. It was like we were uh, in conflict with each other because our companies were trying to negotiate, but we built this level of trust. And then, um, you know, I, uh, I, I was very fortunate that he introduced me to his in-laws and what a wonderful, wonderful family.
0: Yeah. And my gosh, I mean, clearly a huge pivotal part of your identity, your career took you through raising your girls. I mean, 19 years with one family, with one company, but it didn't just stay with them. You grew it because it's like, hey, now we can Mm -hmm. scale this thing. How did that how did you guys make that decision? And what did that look like?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, these stories are so interesting. So the family sells Russell. We start setting up this structure. They're finally at a place like we can enjoy this. Well, you know, it was like 54 years of building the business. Jane Russell was in the business. You know, a couple of the kids are in the business and Jane Russell gets diagnosed with cancer and it sent the family in, I'll say a major tail spin of like, okay, we have all this wealth, but we can't save our mother. And we, we've, we've worked so hard to get here and now like what, what is it worth to us? So we sat down, I I can't remember this time exactly about what's important to us as a family. What are we gonna do with this? How can we actually make a positive impact on the world with this wealth? We can't save our mom. She passed away a year later or 16 months later. Um, And that was the the original idea for opening our doors to other families of creating a community of families where you you could believe in this notion that we can use wealth as a force for good that it's not this nasty thing where it's just about making money that, that we can actually um, use our resources, whether it be wealth or our name or our, an impact and make a positive impact on the world and a positive impact on our family, You know, thinking about legacy, raising our kids. And um, so that we opened our doors in 2004, Jane passed away in 02. We went through a whole year of like figuring out how to do this and opened our doors in 2004. And then that's what we grew that business and ended up selling it to and Advisors about 17 years later. And I mean, it was a really wonderful business that was thoughtful about families, helping families make an impact, thinking about well-being. And, you know, it's it's really hard to even like, let's think about raising your children in this space of affluence with a lot of wealth. Like, how do you raise them to be self-sustainable and happy when, when they're going to inherit all this wealth? And that's what the company was about it wasn't about making a bunch of money even though that it you know you can do good and do well at the same time it was really about how do we support well-being for wealthy families
0: the kid part I think is so complex um we had these friends in New York who came from nothing and they had a hedge fund and they had all this money and <clears throat> you know it's easier to have a driver in New York so they had a driver yeah. there and then their daughter like Mike, son and so he was two and so they would pick us up and now all of a sudden we have a driver picking up my son and but the days that we didn't drive with them we would be you know the subway to the train to the blah 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 to the you know like normal humans get in new york right and right. and then it was like imagine our son now suddenly becomes like i don't want to go on the train i don't where's the driver you know you get like crazy and then they were super conflicted about it because it's what's well, easier to take the private jet but a this is bad for the environment right. but it's more efficient But then how are we going to create kids that are gritty and driven, I guess, because they're not going to ever know what it's like to not have it. And it's this cycle of like entitlement. And then sometimes they have depression and then they are depressed that they're depressed because they don't understand what's there to be depressed about. We have everything we could ever want. It's this whole cycle that I've seen with several families and their children. The children is the biggest thing that I've seen.
1: It is the biggest topic of conversation amongst our families, if they have Children. Yeah. If they don't have children. It's about how can I utilize my wealth philanthropically or, yeah. you know, that, that, that's probably more the conversation if there's no children, but it's the number one conversation.
0: Yeah. And especially if they made it on their own, because it's like, well, I made it on my own because I've got this hunger and this grit and this desire to, and, and this work ethic. Like, and then if somebody's just been given it, it's a little bit like, how do I, yeah. And then the kid has this this guilt. If they, even if they're they in do, a family, there's business, a lot of guilt. There's a lot of guilt. And right. so these are the types of examples I think you probably deal with constantly. But for the normal human who's just looking into um, partnering with, with someone who's a wealth advisor on a normal level, um, what types of things should they be looking at? What types of questions should they be asking um, just like in general?
1: Yeah, you know, for, for me and for us, um, it really is about what are your goals and objectives and honing in on truly what is meaningful for you. Investments are just a tool and a lever that you can pull. Estate planning is just a tool and a lever. It's really about taking a step back and figuring out what's important to you and how do you want to utilize your wealth or um, what wealth do you need to facilitate those goals and objectives and how can we help get you there? I mean, it's it's about developing a plan for you that has to be nimble because markets change estate plans change kids are born people pass all those things but it's it's about the impact you want to make well-being and you know thinking about how you can what, what's the what's the what's the use of having wealth if you don't have well-being
0: um 100% you
1: know, 100% right and, and like I said, there are, there are just sort of tools behind the scenes to help you get there. It's really about well being and accomplishing your goals and objectives. Yeah. And, you know, I, and I think again, going back to, you asked me what, what people would say about me and, and, and I said, I was an empath and, you know, I think a part of it is having a lot of empathy for the journey and helping people. Cause there is a lot of guilt with wealth especially within the second and the third generations of families, the first generation seems to be very driven. And like you said, gritty and you know, competitive. And, um, but oftentimes I find that the second and third generations, there's a lot of guilt in trying to figure out what, what's meaningful for me. How can I make my own impact? Because people are looking at me like I inherited all this wealth and I can't, I just couldn't have earned anything on my own. And so it really is about helping families through those journeys.
0: Mm -hmm. So that's the like 30,000 foot level of like, um, I guess, philosophy around impact and meaning of kind of what you want, but like, what's your actual personal approach to investing and your kind of overall investment philosophy, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about diversification and nobody has a crystal ball in um, looking at what's going to happen in the markets. Um, it's about thinking of all different asset classes, you know, whether they be private investments versus public markets, real estate, etc. And having a really well diverse portfolio. It's about understanding your own personal risk, um, which oftentimes has uh, figuring out what your time frame is, and how much risk you're willing to take, and how much you can actually stomach. Um, and then figuring out what kind of impact you want to make. And do you, do you want to invest in something that's having having a positive impact outside of a positive financial impact, you know? And so, um, and, then, and then underneath that, if you kind of take a step down, it's like, where do you find investments that, that align with that? And where are you spending your money? Does it make sense to go into a private equity investment? Does it make sense to go into the market? How do you go into the market? What's the most cost-effective, efficient way to do that. Is it a passive or is it an active investment? And so, um, but if you don't start up top and think about what are my goals and objectives, what is my risk? And then developing a plan. Like I said, investments are a lever, but what's the overall plan? Um, That's the most important part.
0: Yeah. And are you ever, um, I mean, I guess you're in a position, well, I mean, let's go into Laird Norton now, because now you're at a whole nother level. which is crazy town to me. Um, It's public. I mean, talk about the assets under management. Tell me also just like how this whole thing happened because it's only been a few years.
1: Yeah, so uh, Laird Norton was founded 55 years ago. Laird Norton Wealth Management has actually started as a trust company um, for the Laird and Norton family. They're a seventh generation family that's really intentional with their wealth. Uh, The company started taking on other clients in the 80s. And the family, I, I like to say that the, the Laird Norton family was uh, uh, they had a family business. They became a business owning family when they um, they were originally in Timber. And now we're a, we're a business about families. So um, when I joined in 2020, April of 2020, if you all remember that, perfect, perfect timing, um, we were managing about three point eight billion in assets. And over the next really 14 months. uh we we acquired merged with two other companies and now we're um well depending on the day it's been a tough financial market but we're we're around 15 billion in assets under management have uh just shy of 200 employees and offices in New York LA San Francisco Seattle and work with about 1500 families all across the US so it's been a it's been a you know almost quadrupling our growth or quadrupling our growth in a about a 13 month period like i said
0: was that something that was really intentional or did it happen organically? Um,
1: it, it, it was somewhat intentional. And I'll tell you that the basis of who we are, I think, is really attractive to organizations similar to ours. I mean, it's um, we're family owned, majority family owned. We have employee owners, too. But this family that's committed to the next seven generations and we're not private equity that's looking for a turn on our money or an exit plan you know, people, people who work with families want to make sure that their families are taken care of for the next generation. And even though I may not be here wanting to have an organization that's committed to this space that isn't about just making a lot of money, it's about doing what's right by families. And I think we have a history of, of doing that for families. So um, the first one was more, I would say, intentional. The first um, merger, we uh, acquired a company here in Seattle and brought on uh, a team of 15 and around $2 billion of assets under management. Mm-hmm. What, company, what was, company was that? Uh, the name was Filament. Okay. Really great company here in Seattle that was working with some ultra high net worth families. And a, and a great team that was um, innovative, which has been really nice. And um, so we brought them on in uh, December of twenty. 20- 20, and then literally uh, a, a month later, I got, you know, we got a call from, I got a call from Deb Weatherby who built her firm called Weatherby Asset Management, 32 years, never done a deal, started herself and a really uh, thoughtful firm, invested heavily in impact investing, really thinking about diversity, works with incredible clients and an incredible team. And I think this notion of, a values alignment with the family, with this long-term um, commitment to this space. And then also the fact that we were doing some things that she ha- was thinking about doing. Like we have a trust company, having a trust company in addition to what's called the registered investment advisor. Yes. We're kind of a unicorn in this space where yes. there's a handful of other ones.
0: That's- Well, the, it looks
1: like nature. it.
0: Yeah, because yeah. you've got all these services just researching and I, um, I, I have to say, um, it was the most digestible, um, accessible, like, um, inspiring because it it gave me Mm -hmm. like action items. I was actually printing a lot of your PDFs and one pagers from the various services that you provide. I went into like the investments, the planning, the trust services, all the different areas the seven questions you should ask about equity compensation. I literally was like, okay, what do I own? <laughs> when, should I, when should I like um, activate on that compensation? Like, when should I keep it? When should I, I mean, all yeah. of the different things. What are the tax implications? Because I'm dealing with equity offerings daily with my candidates right. who are getting stock right. options. Um, and I thought I kind of knew, but it's like really good. I'm like, oh, I can just be like, look at this and send them this link. Um, yeah. All of the estate plan um, strategies that you guys have in there, how to choose a trustee, the checklist that you have. I was just super impressed. And also just- Thank you. When you talked about Weatherby Asset Management, I remember you telling me about, about her and how yeah. impressed you are and how aligned you two are in your philosophy and just values. Um, yeah. Impact investing, I mean, it's, it's so important. It's yeah. so, so important. And, and you know, We I just envision yeah. a
1: world where you don't even use the word impact that every investment has a positive impact on the, on the world, whether right. it's social or environmental.
0: Yeah. Right. And just thinking through um, the fact that you have access to all of this the tax that you can advise people on, like the tax implications of all of their investments and, you know, how to get into the alternative asset space and just all of it. It just felt very, um, like whoever invests with you feels holistic; like the whole picture is taken care of. Um, That's
1: the reason why we went down this path with weather, because you know our five strengths and their five strengths weren't were quite overlapping, and so we felt like together. And, and you know, if you look at our, we call it our True North statement, which is really about how do we unify and bring ourselves together to amplify whatever it is, and like really leveraging each other's strengths, which is difficult than like more difficult than I would say, just hiring them. And like, you got to fit into our structure. We're really thinking we call it, we don't call it integration. We're calling it co-creation, which is like, what can we imagine we can be like, we're building something really different here It's than a regular financial services firm, which, Mm -hmm. which is actually harder to, to like, okay, what, you know, what, how are you doing it? How are we doing it? What could we imagine that could even be better that that we could do it? And and let's strive towards that.
0: Um, Right. Well, and you're also, it looks like committed to corporate responsibility and sustainability as a company, which um, doesn't surprise me. It's aligned with your personal values. Um, You know, just even commitment to the environment. Um, What are you thinking? What are you thinking right now? um, As far as diversity and inclusion. Um, I did go on your site and look at your board and some of your leadership. And I I love that there's some females at the top, obviously starting with you, um, different than most other uh, financial services companies. But how do you think about that and weave that into the daily talk at the company? Yeah, Yeah, well,
1: I I liken it to the four uh, legs of a stool you know you have your, your employees and you have your clients and you have your owners and you have the community and without I mean you could rickety beyond three legs of the stool but you have to think about all four you will see what we call creating shared value as a main pillar of our organization in that like what are the concentric circles and what are the what are the impacts that we're having on the community how can we make a positive impact on the community utilizing our strengths so Financial literacy is obviously one of our strengths. How can we go out into marginalized communities and help some of those communities actually build wealth and give them some financial literacy? Um, one of the prominent, I'll say shingles under creating shared value is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we look at everything through that lens, whether it be you know, through our clients, like I said, building clients of diverse nature, our employees, making sure that we're a really inclusive place where we honor um, all Types of voices. It's about all different types of voices and, um, and, and and equity and being really thoughtful about it. And you're right, our board is uh, now led by Lisa Brummel, um, who was one of the original HR directors at Microsoft. At Microsoft, you know? right? Yeah. Yep, Microsoft. And she owns the Seattle Storm now and is incredibly passionate about. DEI,
0: right, and, and you have Laura Jennings also. Laura Jennings from, yep, she started a
1: company called NAC, um, and then Julia Z just joined the board, and she's been really instrumental in impact investing and diversity as well. So,
0: yeah, incredible. Um, and what are they? What are you thinking about as far as the long term? plans. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping you're not gonna be like, oh, we're 50 billion. I mean, how do you can't get much? It's incredible the size. Um, and I think for me on a, in a way bitter and way smaller, like itty bitty ant size, like for me, <laughs> when like, I think about my company, I get scared of losing control of, yeah. like you said, connectivity um, to people, like the bigger you get, yeah. the more families, um, you know, to make sure that it's not just uh, sending yep. documents and updates, but actually spending time and feeling like you really know them intimately. Um, you can't get much bigger unless you just get wealthier families, you know, with more assets. Yes,
1: yeah. uh, it's such a great question, Shauna. and it, and it's it's not about getting bigger just for getting bigger's sake. And it really is about intentionality. And I, I worry about that as well, uh, which is why it's wonderful that we have our majority owners, this patient family that understands that to build the right kind of company, you have to think generationally. You can't think about profits next year. And it's an ecosystem. And, and some and sometimes you need to lean more on their, the employees. Right now, we're really thinking about our employees. I mean, coming out of COVID and what's going on with inflation and Um, you know, it's been such a, such a stressor these last three years, you know, um, and and thinking about our clients too, and making sure that we have the minds. If we support our employees, we can really support our clients, right? It's, uh, clients come to us because of our people it's it's um
0: 100 well you are at the end of the day it is a service business too and we it's are like in, a, the a, in
1: the relationship business
0: it's a relationship business and if they have a good experience and there's attention they, they feel like they're getting attention and they enjoy working with your team they're gonna have a better experience i 100 percent right. subscribe to that i'm curious i mean you've got this um the board work that you're super passionate about um balanced with your two beautiful girls um, and you know, the passions and trying to get to Baja and trying to get to Himalayas <laughs> and all the places, how do you, um, how do you set yourself up in general for like a good work, do you, a good week? Do you have rituals of like planning on a Sunday or every morning I wake up and do this?
1: Yeah. Every morning I wake up and I, and I try to get outside. Uh, I try to go for a walk or get a little bit of exercise. And it's really important to me. I have to clear my, my mind. Um, I, I definitely Sunday night, try to get my head around my, my schedule and, um, plan ahead. So, yeah. You know, I also think I, uh, it's about prioritization too. Um, uh, my kids are in college now, so it's not as much of a burden on my life. You know, there's been this whole freeing of like, wow, what am I going to do tonight? I don't have kids at home. You're not, you're not quite there yet, but, uh, you will be there soon. And so, Uh, but but it's a different kind of mental allocation to your kids about thinking about what we can kind of go see them and making sure you check in on them so yeah Yeah.
0: and so the board work is what amount of time for you and um how do you what i guess lens do you how do i ask this question how do you decide what board work you're going to do because i'm sure you get hit up all the time
1: yeah it's about priorities as well and you know I'm on the board two boards right now I'm on uh, the nature conservancy board and then the wilderness awareness school and it's about prioritization and sometimes you just have to um be clear about what (laughs) yeah say no be clear about expectations because you know I always aim to exceed expectations but you got to make sure you're setting the right expectations in the beginning so
0: yeah yeah. Well, it's incredible all the stuff that you're doing to give back, and um, I am curious if anybody's listening to the podcast and would want to work with Laird Norton. Is there a minimum investable assets that they would need to um, to have in order to work with your team, or um, do you do workshops or anything? That's if somebody's listening and wants to work with you, like can they? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I uh,
1: would love to talk to people. And and as you saw from our website, we, we really pride ourselves in education. So you can get a lot of materials there that'd be useful no matter what your wealth size is. Um, we really aim to help educate the public, like I said, using financial literacy. Um, we tend to partner with families that have 10 million or more in liquid assets. Um, the conversations are just different when you have a family with, you know, $50 million versus $5 million. You know, you're thinking more about probably retirement and college planning at 5 million. We we're thinking generationally at, at, at the 50 million. So, yeah. And those conversations start to pivot at around at around 10 million. But, you know, we've got we've got families that we've worked with for a very long time and uh, for generations and, and, and assets kind of dissipate down. So it kind of depends on the situation. Um, yeah. There's no hard, fast rule for us with this. It, it, it kind of depends on where a family is. Maybe they're in wealth creation and it makes sense to partner with us now.
0: Yeah. What I think would be incredible, and I might just have to hit you up for this, is to host something and just have you come in and talk to people, because so many people could benefit from your wisdom of just your philosophy and the way that, um, that you personally think about well-being as it relates mm-hmm. to wealth and how the two are integrated. Um, I would love that. Yeah. I would love that. Thank you so much. My final question for you is what fuels you?
1: Mm. Yeah, you know, I, love helping people kind of become their best self. That's what fuels me when I see somebody, whether it's just a little nugget that they take. And I, you know, I tend to be behind the scenes helping families or employees that I, I love seeing somebody who is on the journey of becoming their best self, whatever that means for them. That, that, that gets me really, that's what gets me up in the morning.
0: Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast.